the new series is going to be entitled Unleashing the King. Some of you are going to wonder what I'm about to do, and I'm going to have some fun with you because I'm about to put my king outfit on. Okay, I've got my scepter. I've got my little crown here. I've got my scroll, and uh, we should be good to go. But uh, what has to happen here, though, is um, we want to be encouraged, too, because uh, we're going to be doing some other fun stuff this week. So just want to encourage you to consider that. But bear with me as I have some fun. So I have a scepter here. I have my crown, and I'm about to announce my, my, my throne here. So give me a chance to do so as I lay out the scroll. Okay. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. As the king of the land of Bruno, I uh, present to you what I would consider to be my life in which I have full authority, absolute authority. No other authority can be above me other than God. So I will stand to say that I will claim what I want next in my life. And therefore, not only will I do it to this particular person here in the land of Bruno, to anyone else who is in the land of Bruno will have to adhere to what my rules and regulations will be. Only God will have to change that in me, but I too will even consider changing God. So therefore, as the king of the land of Bruno, I will present to you my land and my statement here to you that this will exist forever and ever and ever and the scroll is closed. Can you imagine? Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine? How many of you think that I could do that every morning if I wanted to? I can do this every morning. I can say to God, thanks God, but I'm the king of my own life. This is the land of Bruno, and I make and call the shots. I have my scepter, Lord. Got my crown. I even make an announcement every morning. Not today, Lord. I think I got this one. I wonder how often we don't think about that. Because what is a king? What's the way that a king presents himself to his inhabitants, to the people who live in his land. This is my land. This is the body, the temple. As a Christian, could I even consider that? We have to ask that question because too often we hear in the world today when we deem someone to be a king in sports, we call him King James, the basketball star. Why do we call him a king? Because he reigns. He reigns in basketball. No one plays at his level. When King James plays, no one is in his land. He's in a land of his own. Or when Michael Jackson was deemed the king of pop, no one is like Michael. Michael's a diva. Although he has passed away, sad life, he was deemed forever the king of pop. No one could dance like him. No one could sing like him. Jackson, Michael Jackson was in a land of his own. When you think of Elvis Presley, although you may have not accepted his music, if you were a Christian growing up, maybe you wouldn't want to, you know, do some of, you know, to sing some of his songs and do some of his moves with the jailhouse rock. He was still the king. Why? Because he was in a land of his own. Everybody knew 
Elvis because of his voice, because of his moves. See, each one of us could deem that in our own lives. Maybe I'm not the king of you, but I sure enough could be the king of me. And if I'm the king of me, and Jesus is supposed to be the king, then what am I supposed to do? Then we're going to be fighting over the role and the position of king. We don't often think of it in those terms. We think it's silly. But when we say, is Jesus the king, as we enter into a Christmas season, is he really the king? I mean, we can be practical. We can do things traditional, or we can be practical and apply it to our lives. And I think it's important because the word king refers to someone who has authority. And if we think about authority, I have the authority in and of myself to do whatever I want while I'm in the land of Bruno. Once I enter into someone else's land, I don't have that authority. But in the land of Bruno, I have that authority. And see, it goes on to say absolute monarchy and its supreme authority. No written laws for the king. No legislature or customs. Unlike a constitution where we have Under the Constitution, we have a law. We have to abide by it. See, and even in the Hebrew kings, they did not rule on their own right, though, because, see, they were chosen by God and led by God in the country of Israel. And we see that in the Scriptures. But there was also something in the monarchy of the 16th and 17th century, the divine right of kings, the divine right that only God has a say to the king, but the king is only under the authority of God, to which there wasn't even a separation between church and state. And even the king would have to adhere to what God would have to say even through the priesthood. And so you see going on and on and on that that's the question. But if this represents authority... It's a symbol of authority, as so would be a signet ring. Even in the Old Testament, they would document it with their ring by saying, I have the authority to make this document a document forever. We see that in the Old Testament. But how does the position of a king and his authority correlate with Western American individualism? Let me go here now, a few questions. If the king has only one authority according to the divine right of kings with God, as we continue in our culture, individualism has taken the role of authority in our society. There has been less accountability and more tolerance, more and more of seeking and exploring loopholes to gain their individual preferences. Now watch now. As believers in Christ, have we adopted this theory that in our individual preferences is more important than even what God would desire for us to do. So much that we're willing to fight because we don't want to be corporate. We want to be individuals. And we have preferences. If I'm the king of me and I have preferences, then I should adhere that everybody follows my preferences. Now, what are preferences? Things that I enjoy. Things that I want to be done a certain way in my life. And see, as Christians, we have to ask the question, 
Is our priority always for the believer to be happy? Is the priority for Americans to be happy? And see, why is this correlation? Why am I sharing all this? Because we live in a society that is of capitalism. And is it possible that Americans could become possessive? Does the Bible teach us to encourage to be possessive in our things? Amen, sister. So I do not believe the problem is capitalism. As individuals, we have responsibility to make decisions and are accountable to our decisions. But we really, really need to ask the question, do we really own what we have? No. We know we don't. Do you know, as, because my wife and I have experienced a lot of deaths this past year, especially in the past five weeks, we've seen three people in our family die. And as I think about it, and I saw a picture of my mom yesterday because I was pulling things out of the car in the glove compartment, and I saw the picture of my mom when it was her funeral, it blew me away because I couldn't look at it. I had to turn my head because I just start to drop and cry. But why? Because I asked that question. Everything I have, everything I claim to own, if God takes me, it's gone. It's no longer mine. It's no longer mine. And see, if God is God and he owns everything, then who is the king? Am I the king? Do I own everything? Can I call the shots? Can I be the authority? Can I say what I'm going to do when I don't even have any clue what's going to happen next? Can I control the events in my life? Can I tell someone, hey, I just wrote out a document in the land of Bruno. Everyone has to adhere to all my rules and regulations. I mean, someone would come over and say, boy, he must be from New York. He's crazy. But the thing is, is that over and over and over and over again, we ask ourselves a question. Because in the Old Testament, as we look at it and we think about what's happening right now, we think about one thing, that we know that we recognize that Messiah derived from the line of David, the Davidic king. And as the Davidic king and the Davidic throne that lives forever in the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah, we know in the book of Matthew there are 42 generations that reaches to Jesus. And 14 times 3 of 14 different generations at that time was equaling up to 42. We find ourselves when we're working and working, but what happened? We find that Jesus, the Messiah, was born the king. And he's the king of kings. And if he's the king of kings, then we have to ask ourselves the question again. But when we make decisions or we claim for our own possessions and we can determine our future, how do we know? Unless we're willing to give it up. See, Jesus himself, Thanks for putting up with me there for a minute. Jesus himself, when he had to come forth, and he was confronted with many different kinds of people, the struggle that he had to do was that he is God, he is the king, he's walking on earth, he's around 30 years old or a little bit younger, and he's working around preaching the kingdom of God, and he comes across different people, Pharisees, different tax collectors, people who were normal people just living in the towns and the cities. And people would long to see him hearing that he was healing people from diseases, from where they were crippled and lame and they were able to walk again. The news is going around and around. It wasn't CNN, it wasn't Fox News, it wasn't MSNBC, it wasn't the Facebook, it wasn't social media, but the word was getting out because human beings seem to carry out news better than any social network we can ever imagine. Why? 
Because the word was getting around that Jesus, this so-called normal individual who was born in a manger, a stinky old manger, all of a sudden they hear that he's doing miraculous things, divine things, things of miracles that they could have never have heard of other than a prophet of old. And here they thought Jesus was just a teacher and a prophet. And over and over and over again, we have to ask that question because Jesus has come across so many different individuals. And now we see in Matthew 19, if you would turn there, he comes across an individual who is a young man who owns a lot of possessions. Some would see this even in the book of Luke as the young, rich ruler. But we come across a young man and Jesus, it says it right in verse 16, and behold... And now, even in the narrative of the Greek and the Hebrew, it means that now we come to this narrative. And this narrative has come to where it says, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Well, we've got to stop a second because I think he was holding the scepter. I think this young man was holding the scepter. Watch how we ask this question. Think about it now, because that's right there on your outline. It says, when we hold the scepter, this young man believed that his possessions were his own. Now, how do we know that? Because, see, he's, he's said to have a, a, a many possessions, lots of money, but what happened was he wanted to know now, I have gained everything in life. Now all I have to do is gain eternal life, and then I'm good. And once I do, and I know that I have it, and it's secure, then I'm good. So what does he do? He comes up to a rabbi a good teacher for that matter. And Jesus, with the news going around, he's a good rabbi. He's a good teacher. And he asks that question. But here's the problem with his question. He goes, what good deed? What's good? I don't even have to go to when Jesus says, what's good? You have to ask yourself the question. If you were to go to someone and find out what eternal life is, would you say, hey, what good thing do I need to do? I would just say, hey, what do I need to do to get eternal life? Please help me, show me. I want to go to heaven. I just want to go to heaven. But he says, what good deed? Meaning he knows that when he continues to be a man of the law, following the law, having the law mentality, he's thinking of what is good. So we think that if he goes, what good deed? Meaning what do I have to do? What good deed do I have to do to gain eternal life? Interesting, he uses the word do and gain. Do because he's followed the law as a Jew in a, Jew, in a Jewish legalistic mindset. But also gain. Can you imagine someone who owns lots of possessions with lots of money? He's thinking about gaining something. If you are a businessman, always in the stock market, always working with numbers, you're always thinking about gaining. If you have a lot of money, you want more money. They say the, the people who don't give, the people who give less are people who are rich. Why? Because they're trying ways to gain more money. Why? That's security. So what is he doing? He's trying to gain security by asking the question, what must I do to gain? Just like in money, what must I do to gain more money? So the mindset is there. And he's going on and on. But here's the problem. Who is he talking to? Jesus, the King of Kings, the Messiah, the one who came to be born in a manger, simple, humble. Yet we would think that he would come in a robe, in a ray, with a crown and a scepter. But he came as a stinky, in a stinky old manger with smelly, nasty animals. I got to tell you something. 
I'm from the city. If I get anywhere near Lancaster, I start to almost vomit. To think about the smell that you have to smell in Lancaster is beyond it. I'm not going to say what I'd rather smell, but let's just say this. I don't like the smell of cows and sheep and all the stuff, but my father-in-law, he loves it. We were hanging out a few months ago, and my, my son and I were showing him some pictures, and we were showing him some pictures. My, his son, my brother-in-law, was showing us some pictures of his vacation. I said, Dad, Dad, you know, you want to check these pictures out? Some history here. He goes, not unless it's sheep and cow. I'm not interested. And I kid you now, that's my father-in-law. He loves sheep and he loves cow. I hate it because the smell is ridiculous. But the idea is that what you have to understand is that too often here he is standing before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But when we're holding the scepter and we want to do something to gain, your next point, we fail to see the God-man. You know, he didn't even know he was talking to Jesus. He saw him as a teacher. He saw him as a rabbi. But he didn't see him in his ray of king and royalty. And he's the one with the authority and the scepter. See, this young man was so filled with the mentality he had to do something to gain eternal life that he had to gain something to, to gain money or something to earn it that he lost the whole picture and he failed to see the God-man. Two... He failed, we fail to see that we are man. So we fail to see the God-man when we're focused on ourselves. He failed to see the God-man, and we fail to see that we are man. Look at what he says here. Because in verse 16, again, he goes on, he goes, the, the idea that he said when the man came up and he said, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He was focusing on himself. Jesus said this, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. See, he said, why do you ask me what is good? I'm going to point you to the one who is good. See, what he did was Jesus turned the conversation and said, there's nothing you can do that's good. Go hold up your scepter all you want. You still can't gain your way to eternal life. I'm going to tell you about the one who is good. Why? Because Jesus said, you can't do anything to gain eternal life, but you must be able, be in your being perfect to enter into eternal life. See, that whole mindset was he forgot that he was man because man can't keep the commandments. That's why he goes on in the, ver- the last, the next one is like, we fail to see that we are not righteous. Why? Because he goes on to say this. He goes on to say, if, if, uh, if you, there is only one who is good, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. See, in, in, um, in Leviticus 18.5, there was a commandment even in the Old Testament from the law. And in Leviticus 18.5, there was a statement that says you must keep the commandments. But the commandments were not to be kept to gain something. They were kept in a sanctification to be set apart from all the foreign nations around us and around them. And so what happened was when he said, and the author wrote, he says, you shall, in 18.5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So in, what he's telling him is that you, if you want to know what is good, then I'm going to point you to the one is good, God, 
He's not denying his, that he is deity. And then he goes on to say, you want to be good? Keep the commandments. Now, wait a minute now. I'm going to hold up my scepter saying, yeah, I can keep them. Or I can say, Lord, that's impossible. How can I keep the commandments? If I keep the commandments, that means I'm to be perfect. I can't be perfect. It's impossible. I fail often. And see, that's what the mindset is going on here, is that over and over and over again, there's this, this idea that he's forgetting, that he's saying what? So when he goes on to say this, he, instead of saying, I can't keep the commandments because I'm man, I'm imperfect, I'm not righteous, then he goes on, he goes, which ones? So right there, you and I know he's failed. He's failed the test. See, Jesus says, keep the commandments. Our reply should be, no, no way. He goes, which ones? <laughs> Meaning, I think I can do it. In fact, it's possible that I can do it. I say impossible. But when we live by them in our sanctification, does that save us? No. When we obey God, that does, we don't gain eternal life by it. People will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another, if we obey his commandments in the book of John. But when we hold up the scepter and say, I'm the king of me, I make my own choices, you and I, we're not obeying God. We don't see Jesus for who he is. We miss out on that. We forget that and we fail to see that we're just man and we fail to say that we're not righteous. So we're at times saying, which ones? At times in our lives, we start to think, if I just obey enough, God will bless me enough, and then if he blesses me enough, he'll be pleased with me, and if he's pleased with me, then he'll give me more blessings, and then I'll just have a happy, happy life. But God's saying, no, all I want you to do is let go of that scepter. But we put a kung fu grip on it, and I try to get anybody to take my scepter away. Because what we do is we go like this with two hands and say, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, I need to call the shots. God's saying, but you want to be blessed. I do, Lord. I'm going to do A, B, and C for you, and then you're going to bless me. But I still have to hold on to my scepter, because if I hold on to my scepter, then I know, I know I can control my life. And God's saying, no, that's, that's what Jesus is saying to this man. Which ones? He goes, okay, let's go a little further. So what we do is we don't just hold it. We hang on to it. We rely on it. We hang on to the scepter. See, the young man said, which ones? I've kept them all because I am righteous is what he's saying. I know that I've kept the law. Go ahead, Lord, test me. I got this test aced. Was there any humility there? He wanted to know the bare minimum so he could say, I fulfilled the task. I passed the test. I could still hold on to the scepter. But see, he... He really didn't have any interest beyond this. But Jesus continues. Why? Because when we hang on to the scepter, we think righteousness is attained by what we do. We think when we hold on to the scepter, we think we can figure out what we're doing next. Why? Because if we let go of that scepter, we know God's going to have us to do things we don't want to do. There's a fear going on in our minds thinking, wait a minute, if I let go of this scepter, what's God going to call me to do? If I let go of this scepter, is he going to call me to radical, comf- or radical commitment 
radical transformation, that's going to be pain. And I don't want to, I want to hang on to this because then I can call the shots. And if he comes my way, I could say, no, no, Lord, I'm still, I'm still in control of my life. I've got authority. Hold on, Lord, push back, push back, Lord. I'm not ready for that. And see, too often that's what we end up doing. See, righteousness is not determined by our actions. That's why he goes on to say this. This is the young man. In verse 18, he said to them, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. That's six, seven, eight, and nine. And then it goes on, honor your father and your mother. But wait a minute, that's number five. So the first four of the Decalogue are referencing to God. The second part of the Decalogue is reference to human relationships. And so he stops and he says, honor your mother and your father, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Wait a minute. He went from do not do things to now you have a relationship. How often has our society been affected by this? How often that we don't understand when we ask those questions? Because see, in Matthew 22, 34 through 40, he said this to him. He says, Uh, He said it to the person who was talking to, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest of the first commandment. And the second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus went six, seven, eight, nine, then back to five, and then he said, let me just wrap it all up with the, the second part of the greatest commandment. Because... If you, you and I don't love God, we can't love our neighbor. And if we're still holding on to the scepter to control our lives, we're missing out on loving our neighbor. You and I can't reach a world that's lost if we're still trying to hold on to our scepter and calling the shots. If we say to God, well, Lord, I'm not ready for that, and Lord, I'm not ready for that. Oh, Lord, you're, you're saying commitment, discipleship, not ready for that. Oh, Lord, my schedule's kind of crazy. We start to control God by holding and hanging on to the scepter. And then we have the audacity, we claiming that we're walking with God. We want God to bless us while we're holding on to the scepter. And see, that's the question that we have to ask. Because, see, righteousness cannot be determined by our position of authority. What do I mean by that? Well, as a mother and a father, you have an authority by God to lead them. Each one of us have that. But how often has society been broken down by not having a good family unit? As we see the breakdown of society, we see families are broken. Why? Because children are not honoring their mother and their fathers. However, we as parents at times have abused our authority. Why? Because sometimes we make statements we shouldn't. Sometimes we just say, enough is enough. I told you, go upstairs, take a bath, put on your pajamas, and then kiss us goodnight and make sure you brush our teeth. Did you hear me? Do I have to tell you again? And they run, and then they go, and then you walk away and you go, dag, why did I go like that? What happened today? But you go back and you start to get frustrated. And then what, happen is the, what happens is the child sees a frustrated mom or dad. And they go, Dad, Lord, if this is what you're talking about, authority over me, I'm out. This is crazy. But rebellion starts to happen. See, rules without relationship equals rebellion. And what happens too often is we walk around like this, parents. 
You know, and we go. We're ready to, we're ready to pounce on our kids saying, go ahead. Go ahead and make my day. Go ahead. What are you going to say? But that's what we do too often because we hold on to the scepter. And even as an authority, God's not calling us to hold on to the scepter. How are we to bless our children? What can happen to society if families are together? Well, even in the Old Testament, the Lord commanded to have parents hold their children accountable to respect their authorities. In the law, children that disrespected authority could receive severe consequences, even capital punishment. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. See, when we don't show them the proper authority, they rebel. And as they rebel, they will not adhere to the proper authority around them. And then what happens is the breakdown of the family, the breakdown of society, and then we fail all in all. But what is God calling his people to do? Even as parents, train, instruct, coach, model, and mentor. That's what he's calling us to do. And he's telling this young man the same thing with his life. It's not the do's and don'ts. Think about it, young man. If you would simply love God and love your neighbor as yourself, you will be great in the kingdom of God. And he's trying to give him an olive branch. And right at that point, you would think the young man would give in. But no, in his arrogance, he continues. Because see, righteousness is not determined by our own assessment. Here is his assessment. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Wow. First, which ones? Now, I've done them all. What else do I lack? And you know what happens is? That's an arrogant man. That's a man who's not sure of himself. That's a man who's holding on to a scepter. And so often what we do is as we try to make our own assessments, we realize that we assess ourselves based on our intentions and not our actions. You really want to have a true assessment, you have to ask someone very close to you. Husbands, ask your wives. They're going to tell the truth. Wives, ask your husbands. Don't ask them, do I look fat in this dress? Just don't do that, okay? Don't do that. Don't put us in that position. Don't, we want to eat and we want to sleep in our bed. So don't do that. Okay, that's important. But the idea is that when you are assessing, or any one of us, we've got to get the proper assessment. And ultimately what has happened is righteousness is not determined by our own assessment. And here he is assessing, saying, I've done it all. See, what happens is when we do that, when we hold on to the scepter, there's insecurities because we're leaning on to something. Inadequacies, we need something to hold on to. We get selfishness, we get arrogant, we get prideful, we get, we get, we get fearful, and then we become self-righteous. And see, God is saying, though, what does this all lead to when we hold on to the scepter? Pain, bondage, depression. When he says, what do I lack? Wow. But you know what? I got a box over here. 
And sometimes what we do, it's an attractive box, brown in color and nice little statement on there. I put God in my box when I hold on to the scepter. But this is what we do. If you have a box that says, I put God in a box, submission, no, Lord, not ready right now. I'll put that in the box. Disciple a person, no, not ready, Lord. I think I'll put that one. Not ready yet, Lord. I'll just put you in a box. Devotional time, Lord, I'm tired. I've got a long schedule. I've got seven kids, and I have barely have time to talk to my wife. Lord, devotional, I'll pray on my way to work. Give up the TV. Now, come on, Lord, really? My, my favorite TV show to spend time with you? I mean, Lord, I mean, you're, you're asking a little bit too much now. Can we give it a little bit break? Hey, I need to put that one in the box. Intimacy with God. You'll never get it. You and I will never get it unless we're willing to give up something. And see, this goes in the box. We start to do this and then give up my hobby. Lord, I'm not ready right now. See, we put God in a box. We say, God, here, you know what? I'm going to just kind of carry you around, and when I need you, I'll call on you. But right now, I'll just kind of... And we put him in a box and say, you know what, Lord, I'm busy right now. I'll put you over here for now. You know what? I'll be okay without you. I can handle it. No problem, Lord. I, I know what to do. I know what to say. I've been in a church for 35 years. I know what to say and how to say it and how to smile and look good. But I'll keep you in that box. See, too often what we're doing is we're trying to put this together because we're still holding on to the scepter. And then we go so far as with the young man and saying, what still do I lack? He hoists up the scepter. Now here comes the authority. And your next point on your, on your, your outline there, he hoists it up. And he says, wait a minute, I know I still don't lack anything. Lord, you can't tell me there's anything left because I've done it all. Lord, I know how churches run. I know what you're going to do. I know the game. He goes on, I know about law. I know the law mentality. I know what I'm supposed to do to keep the commandments. And then Jesus just throws a knuckle curve. And he says this, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Oh, and by the way, come and follow me. Now all of a sudden, the hoisting goes down and saying, Wow. So he went from here to, and the Bible says he walked away grieved. Just like Jesus was grieved in Gethsemane. He walked away grieved. Dag, is that what I have to do to gain eternal life? Give everything I have? And he just walked away. Why? Because Jesus said, it's not what you do that's going to make you perfect. In fact, Jesus just made that statement to say, you really want to be perfect? Because you have to be perfect to gain eternal life. You really want to be perfect? Give up what you're holding on to, your money, your fame, your fortune, everything you have. Sell it off and then come follow me. So not just give up what you have, surrender yourself to me in my kingdom because I'm the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You want to follow me? Give it up. And I want to encourage you. I really believe that's what Jesus says in the book of Matthew and in the Gospels. 
when you look at a few verses, what did Jesus do in Matthew 8, 22? The cost of discipleship, when he talked to a few people, he said, and Jesus said to a man who wanted to bury his father, he said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's a hard statement. Or when you have in chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus is saying it again. When he goes on, he says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He goes, because, he goes on, he's, he's, he's making it clear, he goes, whoever, and he goes, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. See, that's the true righteousness that God is looking for. And it's important for us to understand, too, in chapter 16, he goes on again, he says the same thing, just talking about the following me, because he called his 12 disciples and he's called to follow 24, he says, then Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He said it again, and then he goes on, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? See, when we hold on, we're forfeiting what God can do to bless us. And see, God's saying, when we hoist it up, we refuse to commit to following him. When we hoist it up, we refuse his treasure. Because see, he wants to bless us. See, spiritual treasure, like I said earlier, when I die, I can't take anything with me. The millions and billions that a billionaire has cannot take with him in eternal life. But when you and I think about what spiritual treasure is, spiritual treasure simply is, you know, Committing yourself to intimacy with God, prayer, discipleship, commitment to reach those who are far away from God, spending quality time with believers and loving the unlovable, reaching the unreachable, forgiving the unforgivable. These are spiritual treasures, and God wants to bless each one of us. But if you and I don't give up the scepter, we keep holding on and hanging on and hoist it up, we're missing out on the blessings that God wants. See, that's why he says in Matthew 6, he says, there where your heart is is also your treasure because God wants to move in a cool way. He wants to say to us that if we're willing to do it, he wants to bless us. Because ultimately, if we don't give up the scepter, then we refuse to love. And to love is unlike the world's love. It's not loving someone who loves you, but it's loving someone who mistreats you who says wrong things, who spits at you, who says he hates you, who says he doesn't want to ha- have anything to do with you. When you can learn to love that person, you got to let go of the scepter before you do that. I have seen that in my life. I've experienced that in my life. And I can tell you that it has been an amazing peace that you can receive from God when you love someone who's not lovable. But God is calling each one of us. But what we do is we hold on to the scepter. And this is what happens. We miss out on the treasure because we're not willing to commit. See, holding on to the scepter reveals our heart. That's why he went on in chapter 19, going back to the story of the young man. He said this at the very end. When he walked away and he was sorrowful for his great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, with God all things are possible. See, what was impossible was that man to be able to keep the commandments. What was impossible was when he said, which ones? What was impossible is when he said, wait a minute, I've done all those. Which do I lack now? He kept trying to find a loophole to get into the eternal life, into the presence of God. And God's saying, impossible. But all things are possible. When we hold on to our scepter and we want to do what we want to do, we not only miss on the freedom of enjoying him and going to a new level, we really can't truly receive the blessing of God. See, the box that we put God in needs to open up. In these coming weeks, we're going to talk about the box. Because right now, many of us, all of us can go through this time. We put God in a box. I'm not accusing anybody here, by the way, because I put God in a box myself. I do. Because I know God can be more freedom in my life. I can have more freedom, more openness to God, and I do, and I put him in a box. But God wants to slowly open the box. He wants to take the box like this and then open up the edges. And then that's the first start. Then he wants to cut the sides out. That's the next step. And then the last one is he opens it up and says, now the expansion has started. I want to show you things you never, ever dreamed of. But you got to get me out of the box. Let go of the scepter and get me out of that box because I want to do some cool things with you. But you and I, it's okay if God reveals this to you. Because the start is this. I'm running to your arms. I'm running to your arms, Jesus. It starts with that. You and I could just simply say, I don't want to hold on to the scepter. God, teach me to run into your arms. Because I want to encourage you, that's what it's going to take. we got to unleash the king. Either the king is you and I, or Jesus. I want Jesus to be the king of my life. But i got to go through this process. I know I have him in a box right now. I think this church has him in a box. Honestly, I do. And I think that the people of God, we have to open ourselves up to God and let him be king, whatever that means whatever that means in your life, whatever that means for this church, whatever that means. Let me encourage you and pray for you because we need to ask that question. And as we go moving into a communion time, we have to ask those questions as well as we reflect on God and what he can do for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. It would be peculiar to think, Lord, who would ever think that we would be talking about a king or a scepter or a crown, just symbols of authority. But yet we are reminded that even when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Christmas to know that Jesus, the king of kings, the king is born, was the start for us, salvation. He came here to earth to be born and to die. 
And Lord, too many of us have put you in a box. We're afraid that if we let go of the scepter, you're going to make us do things we don't want to do. And we're afraid of it. Lord, I pray that today, even as we run into communion and realize that it, it, there's sin in our lives, there's things in our hearts that we haven't asked for you to work on. There are things that we know that have blocked and have become an obstacle and have hijacked our relationship with you. God, we pray that even now as we are reminded of what the communion is and the elements, that Jesus broke his body, he was broken, he was torn up, he was mangled and murdered, all for sin. And God, I pray that you would encourage us right now as we consider that to be open to what you want to do in each one of us. So Lord, we pray that as we go in a time of communion, let it be a time of rest, but a time of reminding that we need to confess our sins to you. In Jesus' name, amen.